There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie! Yeah, we're gonna be a movie! Starring everybody and me! There'll be heroes bold, there'll be comedy, and a lot of fuss that ends for us real happily. Hey, a movie! We can watch it all develop! Starring everybody and me! We'll take the world! And we are going to start right here. Hello and welcome to a Rattledge and Broadcasting Network premiere podcast triple feature where we bring you the old, the new, the used and the blue from the world of streaming movies. We are celebrating Black History Month here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network as we do every year. And joining me on the journey through black cinema, again, old, new, used, and blue, is the one and only old, <laughs> new, used, and blue, Jason Teasley. How do you do, sir? Doing good, man. Doing good. Um, yeah, very interested in this conversation we're going to have tonight uh, in the retrospect of Spike Lee. That's what, we're do- that's what we're doing here. We are looking at three of Spike Lee's many, many films. Um, I picked two. Jason picked one, which is why we're not doing Bamboozled, much to my chagrin and constant <laughs> whining. Um, but we are doing, I think, one of his seminal pictures in Do the Right Thing. We're doing um, a very important, I think, picture, uh, a biopic that he did starring Denzel Washington on Malcolm X, which I think is a very important film. And because Jason hates me, old boy, which is a remake <laughs> of a Korean film that apparently is much better than this. Why do you think I hate you? I, I, <laughs> I, I specifically chose this movie for one specific reason. And that specific reason was what exactly? Because you are a mental health professional. It's the Stockholm. It's basically the the Stockholm syndrome. The um, the the sin into madness is, is what happens over twenty years, and of course the twist ending. I will say this, and I don't want to get too far ahead because we are going to start with Do the Right Thing tonight because I can't wait to talk about that movie. It's it's really, it's up, it's definitely in my top 20 films of all time. I, I just adore Do the Right Thing. I think it's amazing. Um, but I will tell you the one thing that came out of my viewing of Old Boy, the one thing that I've sort of held on to and made it a worthwhile viewing experience, it did support my slash fiction fantasy of what of being uh, in the room when Thanos bangs Scarlet Witch. Yes, I mean... <laughs> And you know this is this is where the the entire MCU actually got created. <laughs> that, that that's the that's the headcanon I'm going with. All right, so let's talk about do the right thing here. Have before I had um, when we put together the roster of films we were going to look at for Black History Month, and and you and I said, hey, why don't we look at a director and we both decided that spike lee should be the first the first time i think we've ever just focused on a director for one of these either a long road to ruin or a triple feature um point being i immediately was like yeah we have to talk about do the right thing it's like like the the spike lee film um didn't quite launch him but i think it's the one that he was most known for at the beginning of his career had you ever seen it before no that's why i'll that's why when we talked about this um you know, we we bantered back and forth, and do the mm-hmm. right thing was the the quintessential Spike Lee movie that he's probably most known for to launch his career. Mm-hmm. I don't think he had anything really before this. He did that were like 
he that did, but nobody knows what promise. it is. That's why that that every time like the subject of Spike Lee comes up, everybody says the same thing. They're like, "Didn't isn't do the right thing his first movie? No, his first movie is She's Got to Have It, which came out in 1986, followed by School Days, which was in 1988, and then Do the Right Thing came out in 1989. Um, early on in his career, he did Mo Better Blues, which people know about Jungle Fever. Yeah. Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Clockers. Nobody saw except I, I might be the only person on earth who saw Get on the Bus. Um, people know he got game because of the soundtrack. And then uh, excellent movie. Yeah, excellent movie. And then in the latter half, um, you know, getting into the 2000s, he did Summer of Sam, which I think people know about. Um, Bamboozled, I think people have seen, but not a lot of people know. Uh, 25th Hour, I think everybody has seen that one. That's the one with Ed Norton before he goes to prison. I vaguely remember She Hate Me. I don't remember Inside Man at all or Miracle it's, of it's, Anna. Inside Man's a solid movie. Um, then he did, getting into the 2010s, he did uh, Red Hook Summer, Old Boy, which we're going to talk about tonight, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, <laughs> 2014. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chi Rock, um, and then in 2018, he did two movies, one of which I've never heard of before. The other one I saw in the theater, uh, Passover and Black Klansman. Did you see Black? Did you get a chance to see Black Klansman when it came out? I have not. It's on, uh, it's on my recording. I it came across HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed it today and uh, I put it to record because it's got a great premise. And I remember mm-hmm. you guys covering it and I had I didn't listen to the review because it was on my queue to watch. Mm-hmm. So I haven't listened to that review yet till I watch the movie, but it is on my queue on the DVR. And then lastly, in 2020 for Netflix, he did The Five Bloods, which is on my list to watch eventually. So that's uh, Spike Lee. But getting back to what initially got me down that rabbit hole was, yeah, he did two movies before Do the Right Thing, but that's the one everybody knows and they think it's his first film. So what is Do the Right Thing? Um, Do the Right Thing came out in 1989. Um, it's known uh, mostly because of the Public Enemy song, Fight the Power, that's associated yeah. with it. That's actually in the movie. Um, the film was a critical and commercial success and received numerous accolades, including an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello's portrayal of Sal, the pizzeria owner. It is often listed among the greatest films of all time. Take that, Pat Mullen. Oh, and, <laughs> I'm going to disagree there. <laughs> You're all wrong, damn white people and your lack of film knowledge. In 1999, the film was deemed culturally, Jason Teasley, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected, don't you understand, for preservation in the National Film Registry. Who are you, Jason Teasley, to argue with the... Uh, Library of Congress and the National Film Registry. How dare you? How dare well, you? Uh, based on you know the last twenty some years, uh, I've got half a brain, so that makes me more qualified more than the government of the United States. <laughs> so yeah, we we can go there. <laughs> sure. All right. Um, all kidding aside. Uh, so this um, once again stars uh, Spike Lee in the title role uh, as Mookie. Danny Aiello is Sal, Ozzy Davis as Damea, Ruby D is mother sister. I love the names in this. This is yeah. this is my heart, Jason. Jason. This is 1989. I was still living in the black neighborhood of uh, in the suburbs of New York City. This is my shit, man. Do the right thing is my shit. Um, I, I 
and we'll get into this a little bit more. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of this movie, I was okay with. Ten yeah. percent of the movie, not so much. Ru- ruined, ruined everything for me. And we'll we'll go in, we'll explore yeah. it. But this From- caught the the essence of the eighties and early nineties urban culture. Um, Giancarlo Esposito, who's in like everything now, plays a young, brash, bugging out who is Jason Teasley's favorite character in this movie. Well, I mean, you know, he did become successful. He started selling meth out of chickens, chicken restaurants. Another one that you've seen in all but in a whole bunch of different things is Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim, who has the best line of this entire movie. Because you see, Jason Teasley first comes love. Then hate, but then love comes back with a left hook, and then <laughs> well, well, Radio Rahim, and mm. you know, uh, spoiler, spoiler alert. So I won't give you about ten seconds here. He does not really die. He goes on to a prominent film, uh, a prominent news career, and he he is still in New York. He becomes successful. He works at the Daily uh, Bugle, and you know, he works for J. Jonas Jameson, and. If you don't believe me, go watch the Raimi verse of Spider-Man. John Turturro plays Pino. Richard Edson is Vito. Roger Guinevere Smith as Smiley. Rosie Perez, I think this introduced her into the film world, yes. as Tina. Joy Lee as Jade. Steve White as Ahmad. A young Martin Lawrence before he went plum crazy and then got fat uh, plays C. Lee Leonard L. Thomas as Punchy. And then we have a... <laughs> Robin Harris with the best. Oh name, my god! Robin Harris with the best name in this entire cast is Sweet Dick Willie. Yes, he was actually one of my favorite comedians. Yeah, and Robin Harris tried, is, the, is the shit. Baby's ba- kids. Baby's mm-hmm. kids is one of my f- most iconic. That and Goonie Goo by Eddie Murphy and the mm-hmm. Ice Cream Man. Those are probably <laughs> my three favorite comedy bits uh, yeah. of growing up. Do you not you do you not understand what's going on with baby's kids? They don't die, Jason Teasley. They multiply. That is correct, sir. You're legit. Yeah, I'm too legit uh, to quit. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Um, and then rounding out the cast here, we have Paul Benjamin as ML, Frankie Faison from The Wire as Coconut Sid. Samuel Jackson, everything as Mr. Senior Love, which I forgot was even in this. Um, Steve Park, Rick Aiello, Miguel Sandoval, Luis Antonio Ramos, John Savage, Frank Vincent, Richard Parnell, Habersham, and then Nicholas Tuturo as an uncredited extra. All right. So you didn't love it. Pat doesn't love it. I think it's the best thing ever. Um, most people have probably who are going to watch this video probably even either don't remember it or never saw it and don't know what the hell we're talking about. So what are we talking about? We're talking about 25-year-old Mookie who lives in Bedsty uh with his sister Jade, has a toddler son named Hector and a girlfriend named Tina. And he works as a delivery boy at the local pizzeria that has been owned and operated for 25 years by Sal, an Italian, an Italian American who lives in another New York neighborhood. Sal's racist eldest son, Pino, is antagonistic, to say the least, towards mm-hmm. Mookie, clashing with both his father, who refuses to move his business out of the majority African-American neighborhood, and his younger brother, Vito, who is friendly with Mookie. Many distinctive residents are introduced, including drunk Damea, mother sister, who watches the neighborhood from her brownstone, Radio Rahim, who blasts public enemies, fight the power <laughs> in his boombox on a loop, 
Um, Smiley, a mentally disabled man who meanders around the neighborhood trying to sell hand-colored pictures of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. At Sal's, Mookie and friend bugging out. Great name. Um, questions Sal about his wall of fame decorated with photos of famous Italian-Americans and demands that Sal put up pictures of black celebrities since the pizzeria is in a black neighborhood. Sal replies that it's his business and he'll do whatever the hell he wants. Um, bugging out attempts to start a boycott of the pizzeria. Poorly. Uh, during the yeah. day, <laughs> just, just run up to people and say, I'm just going to a rant about what you're boycotting. That works every time. Um, during the day, local teenagers open a fire hydrant and douse the other neighbors to beat the heat wave before officers Mark Ponte and Gary Long intervene. After a phone call, Mookie and Pino debate race, like you do. Mookie confronts Pino about his contempt towards African-Americans, although Pino's favorite celebrities are black. Um, they're not Mookie's kind of black. They're like good black. That's what Tar John Tartaro tells us. Various characters express racial insults. It's the best part of the movie. Mookie uh, against Italians. Pino against African-Americans. Latino Stevie against Koreans. White officer Gary Long against Puerto Ricans. And Korean store owner Sonny against Jews. Because everyone's got to take a kick in the pants. Pino expresses his hatred for African-Americans to Sal, who insists on staying in the neighborhood. That night, bugging out and Radio Rahim and Smiley march into Sal's and demand that Sal change the wall of fame. Sal demands that Radio Rahim turn his boombox off, but he refuses. Bugging out calls Sal and sons guinea bastards and threatens to shutter the pizzeria until they change the wall of fame. A frustrated Sal calls bugging out a racial slur used for black people that they use commonly to address each other in saying hello and destroys Ra uh, Rahim's boombox with a bat like you do. Rahim attacks Sal, igniting a fight that spills out into the street and attracts a crowd. While Rahim is choking Sal, the police arrive, break up the fight, and apprehend Rahim in bugging out like you do. Despite the pleas of his partner, Ponty, and onlookers, Long tightens his chokehold on Rahim, killing him. Realizing their error, the officers place the body in the back of the police car <laughs> yeah, and like you do <laughs> and scoot off into the night. On the onlookers, devastated and enraged as they should be about Radio Rahim's death, blame Sal and his sons. Damea tries to convince the crowd that Sal did not cause his death, but the crowd remains stationary. Mookie dra grabs a trash can and throws it through the window of Sal's pizzeria, sparking the crowd to rush in and destroy the pizzeria because he has all he can stand and he can't stand no more. Smiley sets the building on fire and Damea pulls Sal and Sons away from the mob, which turns towards Sonny's store, preparing to destroy it too. However, a panicked Sonny eventually dissuades the group. The police return to the site along with the firemen and riot patrols to extinguish the fire and disperse the crowd. After they issue a warning, the firefighters turn their hoses on the rioters, leading to more fighting and arrests, while Mookie and Jade watch bewilderedly from the curb. Smiley wanders back into the smoldering building and hangs out one of his pictures on the remnants of Sal's wall of fame. The next day, after arguing with Tina, Mookie returns to Sal. Uh, he feels that Mookie has betrayed him, but Mookie demands his weekly pay. You're going to talk about people speaking the same language and not hearing each other. That's that scene. Yeah. The, the two men argue and cautiously reconcile, and Sal finally pays Mookie. Local DJ Mr. Senor Love Daddy dedicates a song to Radio Rahim. Before the credits, two quotations expressing different views about violence, one by Martin Luther King and one by Malcolm X appear, followed by a photograph of both leaders shaking hands. Lee then dedicates the film to the families of the six victims of brutality 
of racial violence. Eleanor Bumper is Michael Griffith, Arthur Miller Jr., Edmund Perry, Yvonne Smallwood, and Michael Stewart. All right, Jason, um, I read the plot. I talked a little bit about my um, my love of this movie, and I will gush about it momentarily. But you first, tell me uh, what your problem is, sir. Why do you well, why do you why do you hate this movie and everybody in it? Well, no, I think the cast is outstanding. Me and you, like I said, off the air, me and you had a little bit of discussions mm -hmm. through our group chat, and we were just going over the accolades of this cast, mm -hmm. uh, and like you know, just seeing them like in their formidable years before they exploded on the scenes and got iconic right. girls and stuff. Uh, to go back and look at this was really interesting. Uh, you know, watching it, you know, you, you you get that. I know him from somewhere, and then of course you're on IMDb, looking mm -hmm. up and like, wow. But this movie, it had a lot of good points. Uh, like I said, ninety percent of the movie, it was good. It shows an everyday life in mm -hmm. a multicultural neighborhood, the racial tensions and stuff that are always there. That he kind of uses a catalyst to turn the the tensions up um but this goes back and this plays a lot into today's culture in 2022 still relevant you you one you have a small uh, uh one person offended that wants to change something that of somebody else's business and they go in and demand it to be done and don't realize that you can't tell me what to do in my own business. Go fuck off. Um, and that's that's the, the spark. The other thing is the the police brutality, the police relations uh, that you still see uh, was really, really on a um, back burner for most of the movie. You see the glimpses of it. You see what you, you can kind of narrate what's going to happen with the riot um but it still kind of catches you off guard um when it actually happens you you expect you don't expect uh a body just to be you know somebody's life to be snuffed out then then throw in the back of the car and just drove away that's not how stuff happens but it it, it conveys the point of that you know police brutality is is a relative thing it's been there for you know, damn near thirty years plus. No longer than that. Yeah, I'm saying it's it's been there thirty years plus. You see the the racial tensions uh, in neighborhoods in New York and the boroughs and everything, and it kind of shows a light on that. And the just the ending of this movie really left a bitter taste in my mouth because you see the rioting, you see that this has been a cornerstone of the neighborhood for twenty five years. Everybody talks about when bugging out's going to try to get everybody to rally against it to boycott it. Everybody has such nice words. We're not going to, we're not going to get this. Um, well, they're apathetic towards his point. His thing is, he, he's coming from the. He represents black nationalism, and the rest of the neighborhood doesn't give a shit about that. Right. Well. Well. And you know, he's been a cornerstone, and you've got this young, upcoming activist. We'll call him. Uh, mm -hmm. That wants to wants to change everything. Wants to wants to be a mortar. Uh, when in reality, he's just he's the mouthpiece. Why everybody else takes the takes the the fall for everything and deals with the consequences of what he's created. And that's where you see Radio Rakim because 
throughout the movie, Radio Arkeem is a staple of the neighborhood. Everybody knows him, and he's he doesn't have like any antagonist. You know, it, it's kind of like Smiley. He's a part of the neighborhood, but he kind of blends in with everybody. He's one of the weirdos that walks around the neighborhood. You know, it, you you get the sense from Radio Rahim that he's. <sighs> I don't know how how quite to say this, but he he's not he's not mentally capable. Yeah, he he comes across a little spectrumy. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was Spike Lee's intention or not, but he's definitely like there's definitely some sort of like deep seated anxiety or something else going on because he walks around and I say that and it's not expressly stated in the film. There's a lot of subtext here, and I'm not entirely sure what Spike Lee thought he was going for, but my impression was that Radio Rahim was one of these guys that whatever is going on with him, he copes by walking around, you know, playing the same song over and over and over again, which is definitely, you know, evidence of some sort of mental health issue going on. Um, and, you know, the one monologue he gets, and I make fun of it because it's so goofy to me, but if you listen to what he's trying to say. He's he is expressing ideas that he's feeling, and he's trying, and he's doing so in the, in the only language that he knows. He's talking about it in terms of, violence you know he's the whole scene there is he's got love and hate rings on his hands and all he's basically saying is that um you know as love progresses hate comes to meet it and pushes it back and then love comes back and hate but you know and so it, that's all he's really saying it's a lot of nothing really but to him it's meaningful um but to your point the neighborhood is filled with people who are who are living their lives apathetic or some combination of that. And the only one who, you know, it, it's it's like the college kid. You know, they leave home, they go to college, they they learn stuff that's different from the way they grew up in their own neighborhood for the very first time. And suddenly that's their new religion and they got to go home yeah. and tell everyone about it. That's yeah. bugging out. And and and, yeah. and I wanted to and I wanted to let you finish. But I but this has been bugging me since coincidentally, this has been bugging me since I watched the film. And and I'm not sure who am I to argue with the Library of Congress, but hold on. I do think the film's got some interesting flaws to it, and this is one of them. Because Bugging Out, you don't know anything about him. You see from his clothing and the uh, the leather necklace that he's got on that has Africa on it that he's clearly like you know the black nationalist of the neighborhood. And he does say, and he has a conversation with Mookie, I think, before he goes to get a pizza. Um, you know, about stay black and all of that, the kind of thing you would say in that neighborhood if you're that kind of person. And then he goes into the pizza place, he's eating his pizza, and he looks on the wall as if it's the first time he's ever been in the pizza joint. Yeah. And and, and I had a problem with that because what Spike Lee wants to say to us is that he's just now noticing for the first time there are no black people on that wall. I don't believe that that's, that that's possible. He's not a, he's a young fella, but he's not that young. He has to have been in that pizza place before. He has to have noticed there are no black people on the wall. And if you're trying to tell me that he's had some sort of come to Jesus where now he thinks black people should be represented in every store and every corner of this neighborhood where black people live, I needed more on bugging out to get me there. Not just him having an epiphany in the middle of the pizza place for the very first time. Yeah, I mean, if it would have been like, they would have introduced him as a character that came back into the neighborhood yeah. after being off. Right. Then, you know, you could have got to that point a little bit 
Where have you been? You know, hey, man, you're back in the neighborhood. Where have you been? Oh, I was at Brown University or something or Temple University. And I've been learning about all the black people ever in history. You know, okay, I'll see you around. And then he walks in and he was, you know, and maybe even says like, you know, Sal, I've noticed I've never noticed before now that there are no black people on this wall. It's one of the, the flaws in Spike Lee's writing, I think, that he... He jumps to a lot of conclusions. He, yeah, he he obviously has a point of view and something that he has a burning desire to share with the world, and he doesn't. And he just says it like the way. Sometimes I think like Spike Lee's actual character in this isn't Mookie. Spike Lee's actual character is bugging out, and bugging out is just running through the streets, yelling in your face things that he is thinking that is deeply meaningful to him, and you're like. Could you start at the beginning, George Lucas, and not in the middle of this rant? Because like I don't know what you're talking about. And he loses everybody instantly. And boy, is that Spike Lee a lot of times. Yeah, and that's what that was one of the points I was going to make. Because watching this movie and knowing Spike Lee's career and his antics, you see that he is bugging out. This is <laughs> bugging out is Spike Lee. And it's mm-hmm. it's his personality. But it's also kind of the yin-yang that we was talking about, the love-hate. Mookie is who Spike Lee used to be. Bugging Out is who Spike Lee is as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got that. Now, the the like I said, the major issue is the, the very last, like, 10, 15 minutes of the movie is in front of, after the, after Sal's is burnt down, and they're just having this conversation, like, and, and it's, you don't see the animosity that's really there. It's like he's trying to get get a point across. You don't see the animosity. You don't see they're they're not com- they're speaking but not communicating. Mm-hmm. They're they're just speaking to hear the other one, hear their self speak basically, uh, because they're, tr- they're they have no way of getting their point across and seeing everything. And that's that's one thing uh, that really sour. I mean, you could have took that. And of course, we're looking at this through a 2022 lens, not a mm-hmm. 1989 lens. Sure. So yeah, we're going to see things a little different. But you could see in that moment that if you just had like you amped up the tension a little bit between them, mm-hmm. and not just have him wake up and go, "I need to go get paid," <laughs> and just have like a casual conversation, yeah, that that kind of ruined the entire movie for me. Um, I see. Like, I feel like it rings true, though. That is how people talk to each other. You know, we we can see today in the discourse online, and I think you see it in your life around you that people don't listen to each other. People just talk. They talk at. They don't talk to each other. We are talking with each other right now. We are having a discourse. But I think in many cases throughout your your personal life and maybe even your professional life, you see people that are just talking to be heard. Or waiting for their for their chance to speak and not really listening to what the other person is saying. There's not a discourse happening. There's not a give and take. There is either people, as I said, just waiting for the other person to stop talking so that they can talk to them because all they care about is being heard. You know, the, every conversation is an opportunity to be on a soapbox. You know, to be to be heard because whatever their mental health reasons are. You know, or they're just talking at you, and it's not even so much like. They're either talking over you or at you because they don't really care what you have to what you have to say or how you feel or what you're thinking. They just are compelled to talk. 
it's one of the most frustrating things about being in the mental health field for me is is seeing just how many people don't really care what anyone else has to say or think it's um that you know they and these are also the same people who may be using their mouth a lot but saying very very little of substance and so when i look at mookie and sal at the end of the movie after mookie has thrown a trash can through the window and caused everybody else to burn the place to the ground it very much feels like two people who may be physically in the same space, but they're on two different planes of reality and they're just talking and neither one is listening. And is not, the, is that not emblematic of many of the race issues we have, at least in this country is that everyone's talking at each other and nobody's listening. And that brings me to my point. This is the best advice uh, someone ever gave me. And it's, you need to, um, speak to listen not to reply yeah uh and i think that's a lot of communication errors we have because a lot of times you get into a conversation of differing opinions and it's you talk at each other not to each other yeah you 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 waiting for that moment to okay well here's my point i i am push your now the issue i have with this the main issue is mm -hmm. <clears throat> like i said you could a, a a rewrite that could that we mentioned uh, a five minute scene could have fixed this for me and you know and it progressed a little bit further but the fact that you know yes you're in a predominantly black neighborhood you have other and you see the the animosity toward the korean store that opened up mm -hmm. because they say well, you know, I've been here all my life. They, they've they been off the, quote, unquote, off the boat for less than a year, and they've already got their own business. You know, where where are we going to get ours? But it's three old, older black gentlemen sitting there bitching and complaining, and that's that's their life. That's the all they do all day. Is, and the implication is that they're drinking. Like, you don't yeah. ever, ever, ever see it. It's a weird movie because, like, I don't remember what this is rated. It's probably rated R because you see uh, yeah. what's-her-face's boobs in it. But um, thank God for the nipple. Chocolate titties, <laughs> as the big suit man says. Yes. Um, but weirdly enough, no drugs. Like, it's, it, no. it is implied in the subtext that Martin Lawrence's group of guys is probably drug dealers. Radio Rahim might be a drug dealer. Um, the mayor is obviously a drunk, but the only time you ever see him drink anything is in a paper bag. You never actually see him handle liquor. Um, and then the three old guys, just you know, Robin Harris, Frankie Fizer, and I can't remember the guy's name, are you know when they're out just sitting against the wall, jibber jabbering all day. The implication is that they're all drunks too. Yeah, and, and you see that in neighborhoods. You see that in all mm -hmm. neighborhoods. You sure. see that. You see those nosy neighbors, as sister mother is. Mm -hmm. um, you see the the band of misfits, which is Martin Lawrence and his group. Mm -hmm. You see the you see the staples that the the but, oddities mm -hmm. per se and radio rahim and smiley and then you see what holds everything together yeah uh which is pretty much samuel L. jackson's radio station i want to i want you to get to your point go. about what what the what specifically what the exact thing that bugs you about this is because i want to go because then i want to go back to what spike lee is trying to say about black people in that neighborhood in their frustration with the korean grocer so go ahead yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we've already covered it. It's okay. it's the the end, the the last ten minutes, the dialogue at the end, okay. that you know, it's it's how there is no tension there. It's just them having this 
this really. You didn't think there was dramatic. Down. You didn't think there was dramatic tension between Sal and Mookie. No, it it did come across that to me okay. because it, you know there there was no you know on Sal it was his anger stemmed from Mookie coming to get money. Mm-hmm. Mookie's anger came from not getting the money. There was, I mean, you know they it was not the tension from look without your your spark without you instigating this my restaurant would still be here you would right. still have a job you go you could still provide for your family with now because of your actions not only are you not able to provide for your family you took a business out of the the neighborhood mm-hmm. a cornerstone of, uh, business a, out of the neighborhood a thriving business yes um, Sal makes a point of saying that's like the best day they've had in weeks. And, you know, you don't see the tension of the repercussions. You see it's focused. It's focused solely on him getting paid or not getting paid. Mm-hmm. That's where the tension comes from. Not the repercussions of, you know, you, you fuck this up for everybody <laughs> because of, of your choice to ignite a riot. And Mookie doesn't express any remorse. dissatisfaction or remorse or anything else. He's just like, "You're, I'm owed money. I'm really not interested yeah. in you, your fairy story. And the thing of it is, what he's reacting to the cops killing Radio Rahim, which he's kind of like back. It's all subtext. It's all, it's all in Spike Lee's performance. None of this is dialogue. None of this is said. He's sort of, you see him sitting on the stoop. You see him looking around. And he's kind of going back through the events of, you know, how this got here. And in, in a way that is very common for people, utterly absolves Radio Rahim and bugging out of any uh, guilt in, the, in what led to ultimately the cops killing Radio Rahim. You know, he doesn't, it doesn't matter that all Sal asked for Radio Rahim was to turn the damn radio off or turn it down. And he wouldn't do it. You know, they're screaming at Sal over the bar, you know, change the pictures, change the pictures, listen to us, listen to us. They're gently, they're basically throwing a tantrum. Yes. And Sal, who is at the end of a hot, long day, has just lost his patience utterly. And he's now screaming back and no one's listening to each other. It's just screaming. And finally, Sal, in a fit of rage, um, makes a poor choice and, and destroys the radio because he wanted it turned down, which they wouldn't do. And because it's his prized possession, Radio Rahim starts strangling Sal, and they roll outside. And then the cops come, and the cops do what in some cases happens. They use excessive force, and the kid dies. And so Spike is running back through all of that and coming to the basically the conclusion, had you just changed the damn pictures like bugging out ass 12 hours ago, none of we'd still have an alive black guy in this neighborhood. And throws the trash can through the window. Um, at which point, everybody else is already angry about Radio Rahim's death and isn't really putting a lot of thought into it. They just see dead kid goes and trashes the place, you know, and is just. But 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 that takes it back to what I wanted to talk about, which is the frustration that I think black people do talk about in you know, and it comes out in the conversation about the Korean grocer, you know, like. We hear we have this all black neighborhood and we have two 
very successful businesses not owned by black people. What is wrong with us? But they don't. But but there's a cognitive dissonance and an in and and not wanting to own up for your own mistakes and misfortunes and bad choices. And so it's a projection onto other people. You know, you use the phrase, when are we going to get ours? Because it's said in the movie yeah. as if, you know, by virtue, by the simple virtue of being black and having suffered for generations, we should be given successful businesses is the belief of some. And then they're resentful when people come in and do it. And it's like, why, you know, the subtext, you know, the, what's, what's underneath all of that is this feeling of inadequacy in the black culture of like, why can't we get our crap together? And then it gets, you know, and what Spike Lee is saying is that a lot of the stuff gets expressed through racism and violence, you know, but really what it is, is self-loathing and uh, a self-consciousness, um, a, a, a dissatisfaction of self um, and then if you go back even further, it's probably a lot of generational trauma. You have to remember, you know, this takes me, this place takes a movie in 1989, several decades, uh, after, after several decades of, um, people coming back from Vietnam and Korea and world war two, and there's generational substance abuse, there's alcoholism, there's PTSD. A lot of this stuff is not dealt with directly or even known by name. But it affects the black community. It affects a lot of communities, not just the black one. But because we're talking to do the right thing, I'm focusing on that. Um, it, you know, it affects a large portion of a lot of impoverished black communities. And because nobody has the language, the insight, the intelligence, or anything else to express those things any positive way, it just comes out in one negative thing after another. It comes out, again, in racism. And it comes out in violence. It comes out in prejudice. And that's what... Spike Lee is talking about and do the right thing. Uh, all joking aside, I'm I don't care that you and Pat don't like it. You don't have to like it. No one says you do. Uh, and that's and, the and, point. And I don't hold that against you. I I like the movie, but more importantly, I like the point of view that Spike Lee is taking. I like that he's looking at relationships, interactions, generational dissatisfaction, racism. And he's looking at it from the point of view of somebody living through it and living in that community and hearing the Demers and the mother sisters of the world and the radio rocking. These are people that he's that have probably been in his life to some degree yeah. or another. And he's using this movie as a window into that world. And that's why I love it so much. It's not perfect. It's flawed. We talked about some of the flaws in it. There are. Yeah. I, I wish Spike Lee sometimes would slow down and remember that you have to speak to the audience, not at them, <laughs> which is a big yeah. problem with a lot of his movies. Is he? He definitely gets a bit hoity. Don't you think so? Yeah. Do you think Spike Lee yeah. can be a bit hoity? Yes. yes you know, a little high and mighty at times. Like I, I'm so smart and I know so much better than you. Hang on, <laughs> let's let's not be completely, you know. Um, patronizing of the people that have paid good money to come see your flick. Yeah. And in closing, I'm just going to say it's okay not to like to have different opinions. That's mm -hmm. one reason why we do this, yeah. this podcast that we, we have these discussions is because you're very high on this movie. Mm -hmm. I am not. We discuss it. We have the intellectual conversation mm -hmm. and we could go away from this and still have intellectual conversations because we don't like the same thing. And I think that's yeah. a lot of society today is if you don't like what I like, you're a bad person. 
And it's, it's funny. I, 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 I re um, I did a page because it, it never got put up on the W2M uh, page. W2M.net.com where all of our podcasts can be found. There was a two to three year period where the people working on the page didn't put up pages for a lot of my podcasts. One of which was a show that Ronnie, Alexis, Jesse and Robert and I did about toxic fandoms. And that was a big listening back to it. That was a big part of the conversation was the feeling like an attack on an IP that you like is an attack on a person. You and personally, boy, yeah. Yeah. And then boy, is that not the case? But that is a right. big part of our culture right now. I am the IP. I am Star Wars. I am Marvel. I am DC. And if you do not like Marvel, you do not like me. And if you do not like me, then I hate you. And it's like, hang on. <laughs> Back that train all the way up. Right. And, you know, people people having different, different mm -hmm. opinions, whether it be, you know, an IP, political or anything, they take it as personal attacks. And because yeah. nowadays... For some reason, mm -hmm. people have lost their self identity, and I only identify with the the IP or whatever the the, um, the cultural icons that they yeah. associate themselves with. It becomes their. I, I said we said this recently on Damn You Hollywood. The fact that you like something doesn't absolve you of criticism. It's it, it, right. The, your your personality should not be the thing you like. You should have your own personality that you know, and then like things on top of that. I want one last question, and then we'll, I promise we'll move on from this because I honestly could talk about this movie for another hour. Um, so I'm going to control myself and not do that. <laughs> um, this is a talky movie. There's almost no action in this thing. I mean, it crescendos in violence, but up to that point, it's just people walking back and forth across the same street for an hour and a half. Is is it this, you just don't like that kind of movie or no? I had no okay. problem with that. Like I okay. said, I mean, up till up till the thing, the the confrontation, you okay. know, so up till man, up till when Mookie confronts Sal about being paid while standing in front of the burned wreckage of his pizza place. Well, the night before when you know you bust in after closing, okay. so the whole third the, act th through yeah. throws the movie off for you. Okay, yeah, because it's. Throwing a tantrum because somebody, because a business owner isn't giving in to your your demands. That's so, where it kind of went off the rails for me. Did, and did I, you feel and like I it just of, wasn't? Well, that's what I'm trying to ascertain. Did you feel like the third act just stretches credulity and it's not believable, or are you just like this is icky? I don't like it. It's, I, I guess it's just my personality. It's, I don't. Um, as a business owner, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Okay. You don't need to cater to one person's demand. I see what you're saying. So the film take the film takes the side of bugging out and Radio Rahim and ultimately Mookie. And you're like, no, 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 you're on the wrong side. Film, you should be on Sal's side. Yes and no. I, okay. I think that the way it was portrayed mm -hmm. was. As if like Sal what, had done something wrong when he didn't. Right, right. The the defiance of giving in to bugging out is is like this like astrotain, like un unapologetic thing. When it's you know, you should be able to do what you want to do with your business mm -hmm. because you, it's your business. You're so the if one you, so that if we had Spike Lee on this podcast right now, you're telling him like, you know, Spike Lee I understand. Tell, I would tell Lee, Spike Lee to go fuck himself. <laughs> and on that note you know we, we talked a lot about the script Jason 
<laughs> as we discuss acclaimed director, writer-director Spike Lee on this Black History Month, that maybe his Do the Right Thing script might have needed in the past through editing. You know what else it might have needed? Grammarly.com. It certainly would have, Ollie. For you listeners of Triple Feature, Grammarly is offering you free download of the Grammarly software, which could have helped Spike Lee formulate a more coherent script. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively, Spike Lee. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web, Spike Lee. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting a different third act for your movie, Spike Lee. Also, style <laughs> improvements. To Spike, download, Lee. <laughs> Spike Lee. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. You download Grammarly for free. All right, folks, plugs. No, just kidding. Um, the, the, next movie yeah. <laughs> the next movie Jason's going to make me discuss is a remake uh, of a Korean film of note that came out in 2003. The, this is a 2013 film directed by Spike Lee called Old Boy, which is a neo-noir action thriller. Uh, it was written by Mark uh, Protosevich. Shut up. Um, it is an official remake or labeled by Lee as a reinterpretation of the Park Chan-wook's 2003 film of the same name. It stars Thanos, Scarlet Witch, Michael in sorry, Josh yeah. Brolin, Elizabeth Olsen, Michael Imperioli, Samuel Jackson making his second appearance uh, on this triple feature, um, and Charlotte uh, Copley. Um, it had a $30 million budget and bombed horribly. <laughs> um, it, uh, it has a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it made Robert Winfrey cry. So, <laughs> uh, so I didn't love this movie, Jason. Why, do, why, why are we talking about Old Boy and not Bamboozled? Uh, like I said, I mean, at the top of the show, I wanted your take as a mental health professional uh, of the to get a retrospect and your insights on the the effects of be, basically having someone that's kidnapped, basically put into Stockholm syndrome, mm -hmm. drove into madness, released out into the world, and then having their life turned upside down. Do you with like all the, Yes, I do. Why? Why do you like this? Well, why do you like this wretched picture? We're getting there. Okay. You asked me why I had you review it. Okay, I, um, I, and I, I hear you, but I just I'm fascinated that you like. Okay, he, here's the thing. My, I, we're, I'm going <laughs> to let you finish, but I, I need to say this up front. Okay, Kanye, this was an unpleasant viewing experience for me. Like there were certain things that were fun, you know, his, the, the, the 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 violent fight scene with the hammer, which apparently yes. inspired a whole lot of copycats, um, is definitely an interesting watch, as stupid as it is, but when it was over, I don't necessarily have like a lot of viscerally negative reactions to a lot of what I watch. <laughs> I get, I get if I'm watching something that's gross, it's going to be gross. And so I don't react necessarily viscerally. I might not like it, but I don't, I don't come away feeling less. I, I don't come away feeling bad about myself as a person when it's over. I this watched this, did. <laughs> I, I needed a moment when this was, over. I was like, Oh, this, this doesn't make me feel good at all. And to, I will not. <laughs> I will, not the call this person the out. I will not call this person out by name, but I did not know what I was getting into when I saw it. And so when it was over and my reaction was this was unpleasant and the reaction I got back was, well, it wasn't supposed to be a happy movie. 
I didn't know what it was. And I'm sorry for having feelings that were me, you know, and I felt bad when it was over. Excuse the <sighs> fuck out of me. Anyway. You okay. And you know, this movie, and that's that's why I wanted you to review this movie, mm-hmm. is because this is something I know that's completely out of your wheelhouse. Yeah. That is I wanted you to have a visceral reaction because okay. you are a very empathetic person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, over the many years I, I've known you, you're a very empathetic person. So that's, I wanted you to review this movie because of your empathetic person, your, your professional background, and just to get your take on how fucked up this movie is. And of course the twist ending that you find out that is just totally is like, what the fuck? Because very, I watched, I watched very this Chinatown esque. Have you ever seen Chinatown? No, I watched this with okay. Amber. Okay, and, and and Amber was was in intent, and she was into it. And then when it ends, she just looks at me, and goes, "What the fuck did we watch?" And and, and that's the kind of reaction this, that I want out of this movie. You okay. ask why I like it because one of the over the top violence, I yeah. like that. Two is because this movie is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. Yep. Very uncomfortable. Okay. And it's not a cinematic masterpiece. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed it is a movie to make you feel uncomfortable because it you you go through this in a facade of you know of this revenge tale, and then you find out the twist and you're like, I, I feel dirty. <laughs> I feel really dirty. I feel unclean. I feel like I need to go take a shower to get the filth off of me over yeah. what I watched. And as we talked, you know, we're pro wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. Controversies equals, you know, there's no bad publicity. This movie, and, and that's why this, this is one of the movies that are outliers. Because this movie has such a visceral re- reaction, nobody went to see it. Because the ending was spoiled. Okay. That's that was one of the main reasons why this movie bombed because the ending was spoiled, especially in the Korean. Uh and the Korean, you know, we talked in the chat. The Korean um version has a really uncomfortable octopus scene that you you would have been noped out on and <laughs> cussing me through the private chat. But this movie is it's one of those movies going into it if you don't know nothing about it like you did. I wanted your your honest reaction because, one, you know Spike Lee's niche of -hmm. filming. This is when he tried – this is when remake of Korean films was was a big deal. And Spike Lee had to be relevant again. So that he remakes one of the the more popular uh, Korean movies that nobody in the Western world had seen. So when he done this, he did it very not I'm not going to say poorly he did do it justice and that's the take I want to get on you where we don't always review the best movies there's sometimes we <laughs> I'm looking at you Santa Giles hmm. um, but we do re- review movies to get reactions out of each other uh, I'm looking at you Nerdland um, so I want your honest take once you finish this movie, how many times did you cuss me? <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's quick whip through the plot here so we can talk about it. It's a fairly lengthy plot. 
1993, alcoholic advertising executive Joe Doucette gets drunk after losing a major account because he insulted his girl, his client's girlfriend. Before he passes out, he sees a woman with a yellow umbrella selling souvenirs on the street. When he wakes up, he finds himself locked in what appears to be a hotel room. All he can see is a poster of a bellhop on the wall, a shower that releases steam, and a TV show, uh, and a TV showing the news and occasionally fitness videos. His unseen captors provide him food, alcohol, and personal hygiene items, but do not explain why he is held captive. Joe sees a news report saying his ex-wife Donna has been raped and murdered and that he is the prime suspect. Their three-year-old daughter Maya was adopted through the welfare system and is now a cello prodigy. Over the next 20 years, Joe quits drinking and gets into shape, intent on escaping and getting revenge. He compiles a list of all those who might want to imprison him and writes letters to eventually be given to Maya. One day, he sees a TV interview of Maya who says she would forgive her father if she ever saw him. Joe is drugged shortly thereafter. When he wakes up, he is outside in a trunk in a field with a cell phone and a small amount of money. He spots the woman with the yellow umbrella and runs after her. He loses her but encounters Marie Sebastian, played by Elizabeth Olsen, a nurse who offers to help. He refuses the help but takes her business card. Joe goes to his friend Chucky's bar and explains what has happened to him. While being there, Joe receives a call on the cell phone from a man calling himself The Stranger, who mocks him. After failing to identify the caller, Joe collapses from dehydration, and Chucky calls Marie to help. While he recovers, Marie is moved emotionally by Joe's letters to uh, Maya and offers to help him further. She helps him identify a Chinese restaurant which supplied his food while he was held captive. Joe follows a delivery from restaurant from the restaurant to the warehouse where he was being imprisoned and meets Cheney, who is played by Samuel L. Jackson. Its owner, Joe, tortures Cheney by flaying his neck with a utility knife, and he confesses that stranger, the stranger arranged for Joe's captivity. Upon returning to Chucky's bar, Joe finds the stranger, uh, who is Charles Copley, there with a woman with the yellow umbrella. His bodyguard, uh, Hyung Bok. The stranger says they have kidnapped Maya, but if Joe can determine in 46 hours the stranger's identity and the reason for his captivity for 20 years, he'll release Maya. Give Joe 20 million in diamonds, proof of Joe's innocence and Donna's murder, and commit suicide. Joe learns that Cheney and his men are seeking revenge by attacking Marie. After racing to her house, he is captured by Cheney. Just as Cheney is about to cut and torture him, the stranger calls Cheney and offers to pay him for Joe's release. Cheney releases Joe and Marie. Using a music recognition app on her phone, Marie determines that the ringtone from the stranger's call is the theme from Evergreen Academy, which Joe had attended but is now closed and shuttered. Marie visits the school headmistress's home. Joe sneaks in the back door and finds his yearbook where he recognizes a student, Adrian Doyle Price. Joe passes the name to Chucky, then hides Marie in a hotel for her safety. There they have passionate sex. Unaware that Adrian is watching through hidden You can still do that? (laughs) What what now? After knowing the ending, you still do that? I mean, I'm just at that time. <laughs> it goes from a lot quickly, but you know, whatever. Chucky does the same internet sleuthing and leaves a message for Joe, revealing that everything has been about Adrian's sister Amanda. Adrian intercepts and deletes the message before Joe hears it. And because Chucky insulted Adrian's sister, he garrotes Chucky to death with piano wire. Marie and Joe enter the Evergreen Academy grounds and find the school's records regarding Adrian and Amanda. Joe recalls bullying Amanda and seeing Amanda having sex with an older man revealed to be her own father, yuck, in the greenhouse. 
Adrian's father moved to the, the Price family to Luxembourg, where he later murdered his wife and Amanda, attempted to murder Adrian and committed suicide. Back at the car, they find a package with Chucky's tongue inside, like you do. Joe makes Marie promise to let him go after Adrian alone. Joe goes to Adrian's penthouse, kills young Bach by slitting her throat, and confronts Adrian. He then tells Adrian what he found out about Amanda and Adrian's father. Adrian congratulates him for answering the two questions correctly. Adrian, who has convinced himself that his father's abuse was an expression of love, blames the destruction of his family on Joe, who revealed their secret by telling everyone in Evergreen what he saw in the greenhouse. Adrian gives him the diamonds and evidence and escorts him to sets used to fabricate the media watched by Joe in the warehouse. Adrian taunts Joe by questioning why he was released at all. His tormentor shows that the interview with Maya was a setup. The girl, now a woman, was a paid actress. Adrian reveals that Marie is really Joe's own daughter, yuck, and that he wanted Joe to know what it felt like to lose everything. Adrian then commits suicide, shooting himself in the mouth. Horrified, as you would be, Joe writes Marie a letter saying they can never see each other again. He leaves her most of the diamonds, uses the rest to pay Chaney to return him to the captivity of the hotel room. All right, Jason, it's your, it's your show now. What do you want to know? No, I mean, I, I'm just curious. I mean, I've said just about my piece on this. Um, okay. watching, watching, like I said, watching this, how many times did you cuss me? And especially after it end, how many times you said, I'm going to kill him? I didn't. I, I honestly, one, I want you to hear <laughs> me when I say this. You and several others that I do podcasts with. It's not about what we review. It's about the review. So you can make me watch any nonsense, and I'm not going to be upset with you. I'm only going to be upset if the conversation sucks or if you suck at the conversation. Um, but I'll review any piece of shit. Jesus oh, Christ. Trust, you review- <laughs> trust me. I know. I've been on – me and you have a whole Be, be Real say, Movie podcast. Just, were you not there when we did the Blaxploitation films and Santa Jaws and Velocipaster? You know, I, hey, I don't – Hey, hey, Velocipaster is – that's going to be on the Congress library here soon. Crickets. <laughs> Cricket. Don't do it, Mark. That was a grasshopper you put on screen. Okay, Not Melissa. I'm really getting tired of that. <laughs> she does the same damn thing to me. I, it's, it's, fucking YouTube said it was a cricket. I'm going with cricket. Anyway. Um, so to move this forward, uh, I did not hate you for making me watch this. This is a deeply disturbing film. Incest is not pleasant. Um, and certainly that Chinatown esque, you don't realize you're, you you know, you you don't realize you've been in an incestual situation until after you've done it, um, was, was deeply horrifying. Uh, I was thinking a lot about what Robert Winfrey was telling me about the Korean version versus the Spike Lee version and how Spike Lee doesn't seem to have understood it. Uh, in the, right. the wiki was saying that if you that there's a there's a 140 minute cut of this movie that um, may have I don't know at this point if it's been released or not. Um, Josh Brolin thinks it's the better cut. Spike Lee it's is the it's the cut that Spike Lee believes in and thinks is a better movie versus what the studio put out there. Um, Interestingly enough, Spike Lee changed it from a Spike Lee joint to just a you know a film by Spike Lee because the, he feels like his vision of what this should be was so um, 
brutally tampered with. So I don't know if it's that Spike Lee didn't get the source material or that this version of doesn't really represent what his vision was. Either way, I'm without having seen the Korean film, I'm kind of at a loss as to what the point of this film is, other than to be disturbing for its own sake. Revenge. Which is fine. Which is, I, I, I mean, I, no, no, no. I, I understand what's happening in the movie. I'm saying, going back to do the right thing for just a second. Do the right thing is talking about something, and I go and I go over to old boy. I'm like, well, what is old boy trying to tell us? That don't if fuck you fuck kids. with me. If you fuck with me, I'll kill you. All right, you know, I, 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 I <laughs> there's plenty of that out there already. There's John Wick, for example. Um, uh, old boy's new tagline: "Don't fuck your kids." <laughs> yeah, put it right on the DVD box. Yep. So I. I think I I might just be overthinking this. You know, I might not be taking it, you know, at its uh, at, at its uh, level, at its worth. You know, and saying, well, you know, is this more than just a revenge film? No, it's exactly what that is. It's yeah. just a it's a gross, awful, twisty revenge film meant to wrench your soul because you do you are made to feel bad for Elizabeth Olsen's character. Um, you, you do see somewhat of a redemptive arc for Josh Brolin. You know, after a time, he's able to withdraw from alcohol and get himself into shape. And, you know, and then he is sent on this mission and he's less a piece of shit than he was at the beginning of the movie. And so, hey, the hero's arc, um, only to see the whole thing crumble beneath his feet. And so what a great tragedy old boy is. And as tra tragedies go, I, the film certainly works that way. Um Kind of like you with Do the Right Thing, this doesn't really appeal to me. I watched it. It was fine. Um, you know, yes, it, it film should make you feel something. It made me feel icky, so success there. Uh, but this is this was not for me. This was not something that I would necessarily gravitate towards of my own volition outside of, you know, being a film reviewer and creating content for people's consumption. Okay, I mean, that that's... I mean that we've covered everything in old boy. Okay. I mean the the only thing that I want to say about this in closing mm -hmm. is this movie is the the epitome of convenience because if he doesn't like he has to meet Elizabeth Olsen, mm -hmm. he has to go, he has to have the card. It's in kind his of hand. The, it's the Joker's plot in the Dark Knight. If things don't go exactly as they're supposed right. to go, you have no well, movie. Well. In well, is it dark? Yeah, yeah, Dark Knight. I was going to say, you know, also Killing Joke. If you know, if things don't play out exactly the same, you mm -hmm. know, if all, all these all, all these dominoes don't fall exactly right, everything goes goes to shit. So this movie is a matter of convenience, and that's mm -hmm. one thing that I figured that I, I thought you would get a kick out of is because of the the level of how everything's got to fall in place. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I ate Chinese food. So I've got 46 hours to go through, like, 30 Chinese restaurants eating egg rolls. Yeah, I've got 46 hours to solve this escape room puzzle. Yeah, and it all hinges on an egg roll. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just a, it's just a level of convenience that, mm -hmm. that plays out. And the fact, you know, in he becomes John Wick level... Uh, expendable fighting style yeah when when only thing he's been watching is 
you know, uh, workout takes by Fonda. Um, but somehow he learns how to like. Yes, he's able to fight off a mob of guys who are conveniently taking their turns attacking him instead of all jumping on him at once. Right. And when we also realize that he is stab proof, he just yeah. has the knife lunged at his shoulder and just collapses yeah. and conveniently survives without massive blood loss. Look, I we're I, stitches. I, I, we were talking about um, Uncharted on Tuesday, and there's a scene where uh, Antonio Bend spoilers. There's a scene where Antonio Banderas gets his throat slit, and magically, there's no blood. You know, and and you um, the, the Marvel movies where everyone, you know, Black Widow can fall from orbit onto her head, even you know, and she just kind of dusts herself off and does one of these, and she's fine. Like I get it. In movies, nobody can get hurt unless they need right. to, to die. It didn't bother me, but it it just looks stupid to me. All right, so dumb. So, last words on old boy, mm -hmm. or what? Oh, um, I mean, I don't disagree with the with the critical consensus. This is not great. Um, I, I think, I think, I think Josh Brolin's trying his level best, and Elizabeth Olsen is a competent actress. But I, I'm curious to talk to a group of people who think this is awesome and find out why. Like what? What it is about this movie they like? I feel, I feel like this is one of those movies where all anyone remembers is him hitting the group of guys with a hammer, and, <laughs> and, and it's like none of the movie resonated with them in any way. They've forgotten all this movie is is that one scene, and for that reason, they think it's awesome. Yep, hammer time. That's it. It's hammer time. All right, you know, Jason, I'll tell you what. Music is a big part of our life. I know you know that's true, and yes. I like. Fight the Power by Public Enemy. I also like Beans and Cornbread, which is in the movie we're going to talk about next. Beans and Cornbread had a fight. Beans, not Cornbread, out of sight. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'll be ready. I'll be ready tomorrow night. Beans and Cornbread. The f Are you having a fucking stroke? <laughs> no, I'm talking about Beans and Cornbread. Well, okay. Well... You and Beans and Cornbread sound like you're having a wonderful time. We are having where, a wonderful time. Well, where can I hear this Beans and Cornbread that you speak of? In the Malcolm X movie, but also... <laughs> really, did you not catch it in, in, in the barbershop scene? Well, I caught the you know the good segue that I gave you. you go, in the Malcolm X movie, instead <laughs> of going right into the plug... I, I'm going to get there, but I'm, I'm more concerned with... That you just thought I just decided to start singing a, a dandy song and didn't know that that was from the Malcolm X movie. No, Mark, it's called you know I was playing the straight man in this, and I was I was letting you go into the. Segment. I don't think you understand the importance of beans and cornbread in my life, and I don't mean the food. I mean the song. I had the Malcolm X soundtrack when it came out. I was utterly obsessed with that beans and cornbread song to this day. I'll be ready. I'll We're, be ready tomorrow night. Well, beans of cornbread. <laughs> well, you can go to <laughs> where can you go download the Malcolm X soundtrack, Mark? You can stream it, don't you understand? On Amazon Music Unlimited.com. And we just happen to have a link giving away a free trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Again, Amazon Music.com slash W2M Network. Again, it's get Amazon Music.com slash W2M Network. A link is conveniently provided for you in the description of this po podcast. 
uh, you click it, you fill out the information, you agree to the 30 days, and you can download and stream the entire Malcolm X soundtrack featuring beans and cornbread. Beans, not cornbread, out of sight. And that's what Beans said to cornbread. Let me I guess. I made sure you. On the form. <laughs> um, oh, wow. It's going to be the next Metal uh, Hammer of Doom. Just, yes. I'm going to play that. I'm going to be like Radio Rahim and just play it 10 times in a row. I want to. I want to see if there's a metal version that you can get on the show. <laughs> a metal version of beans and cornbread. Yes. There's a guy that does metal covers. His name is Leo, and he does. He has an entire channel dedicated to covers that he does to advertise the studio that I guess he uses. You know, he, he tweet rents him. Out to people. Yeah, I need him tweet to do a metal him. cover of beans and cornbread. Yes, tweet him to do a metal cover of beans and cornbread. Just, okay. just for us. Here, well, here at W2M. Yes. Get amazonmusic.com slash W2M network for the beans and cornbread in your life. And that's what Bean said to cornbread. (laughs) (laughs) Before I lose Jason entirely, let's talk about Malcolm X. Um, (laughs) Malcolm X is a long movie. Um, Yeah, almost as long as this podcast. (laughs) No, it's not three hours long. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. Um, Hang on, I gotta find the film now. All right, so Malcolm X came out in 1992. It's an epic biographical drama film about the life of a civil rights activist uh, and uh, Muslim Spike uh, Malcolm X. It was directed by Spike Lee. The screenplay was by Arnold Pearl and Spike Lee, and it's based on the autobiography of Malcolm X by Malcolm X and Alex Haley. It stars Denzel Washington as the aforementioned Malcolm X, uh, Angela Bassett as Betty Shabazz, Albert Hall as Baines, Al Freeman Jr. as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam, Delroy Lindo as Harlem gang- as a West Indian a West Indian Archie, a Harlem gangster. Spike Lee plays Shorty. By the way, can we like the next time like you're in Florida and we're just like walking around? Can we do that walk? Can we do? Oh the, yeah, the, the spectacular walk. The the one where they they've got the brim hats on. And they're swinging their hand. Yo, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that through City Walk. Yes, please. I I will buy the hats. I don't know if we can you pull buy the, the pinstripe suits, but you buy the hats. We will, we will have either Melissa or Amber video it, and we will we will do the walk right down City Walk. Oh my God! The very first time I saw Malcolm X, this this movie came out in 1992. So I'm in the middle of high school when this happens. Um, okay, 1992. I think I'm in like 10th grade. And I saw Malcolm X, I think, in the theater. I love this movie. I loved Spike Lee back then. Just everything. Everything about that man in his movies was my life. And uh, and I remember that scene where he gets his... The, the movie opens, I think, with his hair getting straightened. Um, and died, yeah. Yeah. And then he puts on his, you know, his pinstripe pimp suit and his wide-brimmed hat. And he meets up with Shorty, who he's emulating. He's his partner in crime, and he wants to be just like Shorty. And Shorty's played by Spike Lee. And they're like, all right, let's 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 show off our straight hair and our pinstripe suits. Let's get it done. And they start doing that walk, man. And I died, Jason Teasley. I just died. I'm like, if I live long enough to be able to walk down the street and sell that walk, that's my goal in life. It's well, amazing. October 2022. <laughs> okay. We're going we're gonna to pimp walk down City Walk. Anyway. There we go. Um, Teresa Randall plays Laura. Kate Vernon is Sophia. Uh, Christopher Plummer is in here as Chaplain Gill. Giancarlo Esposito as Tamal's ex-hire. Um, 
<laughs> see Samuel Jackson in this one too? Nope, does not appear to be so. All right, so have you ever seen this one before? Yes, this is one of my favorite Spike Lee movies. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about this, and it's something I told Amber, um, is if if you say Malcolm X to me, I don't actually picture Malcolm X. I picture Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. <laughs> Real quick, Denzel Washington won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actor and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. I will contend to this day, and I said it when we reviewed Training Day. This is the this is the Oscar yes. he should have won, yes. not for Training Day. I no. think Training Day was like the a makeup, yeah, makeup <laughs> for this. This is this is a Spider Man not being nominated for Best Picture is not an Oscar snub. This is an Oscar snub. <clears throat> yes, very much so. Denzel Washington's performance as Malcolm X is transformative. It is absolutely a revelation. Amazing. And this is what actually made me a big um, Denzel fan. I mean, watching this movie. I mean, this uh, two Denzel movies that like I absolutely, you know, respect him and think he is a phenomenal actor uh, came out of this Mm -hmm. and Reuben Carter uh, when he betrayed Reuben Carter in The Hurricane. Uh, Another great movie, by the way. Yes, those two, those were two portrayals. it's like cemented Denzel Washington in my top three favorite actors and just about anything he's in. I will, mm-hmm. I will definitely at least give us a look at in 2010, the film was selected for preservation, much like do the right thing by the, in the United States national film registry, by the library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Yes. So, and, and I can agree with that because this movie is very impactful. Yeah. Um, it gives you an insight on, you know, Malcolm X's life and his story. Uh, he wasn't always the quote unquote angry black man that everybody kind of associates with him and Martin Luther King being yin and yang of each other. Well, what everyone remembers about Malcolm X is two things it's chickens coming home to roost. That's the uh, that's always the thing that everyone says about Malcolm yeah. X. It's like he never said anything else in this world, and, right? And I think to a lesser extent, and maybe because just because of public enemy these days is the the two black too strong speech. Um, I don't remember if it's him or not. Who? And again, I'm remembering this because it's a clip on a public enemy album. The <laughs> uh, I don't remember if it was Malcolm X or somebody else who said that we have the best trained military, um, but the troops don't want to fight or something like that. In fact, they'd rather. Um, shit, I can't remember the quote now, but it's like they they they'd rather stay home than go to war or something along those lines. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, what everyone knows about about Malcolm X is addressed in the movie is his chickens coming home to roost thing, like in the wake of the JFK assassination. Look, man, I get his point, but boof, bad timing. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not 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 Very. the greatest thing to say out in public at that particular time. Yeah, you know, and is Kennedy was beloved. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of people think that he is just this ultra violent mm-hmm. black man, which yes, he 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 was he did, you know, speak about obtaining goals through violence. But we were talking we were talking about bugging out and do the right thing. Again, he's a black nationalist. He's there, there was a there was very much a thing of we were brought here, we did not elect to come here, and we are owed a, an opportunity to create a world of our own in the United States. And that's a lot of what drives the civil rights movement is this idea of, hey, we're here now. 
And we deserve an equal opportunity at the American dream as any other person that elected to come to this country or got, you know, or was born here. And that's a lot of what Mal of Mal Malcolm X is saying. He's also talking about um, institutional racism and, you know, and the need to change that, you know, in an era where, you know, black people are just getting rights, you know, yes. equal to the rest of the country. And everywhere I think women hadn't even, I think, had the right to vote just yet. Um, so there's a lot going on here. And yeah, so it, Malcolm X is always viewed against Martin Luther King. And, and you know, the, the elementary school story, if you were even taught this, is like, oh, Martin Luther King was the good, peaceful one. Malcolm X yeah. was the angry, yes. you know, violent one. And it's like, well... Neither one of them. <clears throat> Pump your brakes. Yeah, neither one. Neither one of them was perfect, and both of them uh, would have preferred there not be, <clears throat> uh, you know, at the end of the day, not be violence. I think the, the difference was Malcolm X was, you know, was like if if, if violence is the only, if violence is the last resort and the only way, then violence is what it'll be. But we have yeah. to, get, but we have to get there first. It's not going to be, you know, step one violence, step three profit. So right. Which is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of Malcolm X. Um, but let's get into it. Uh, it won a shit ton of awards. Was nominated for a bunch of others. It's it's got an eighty eight rating on Rotten Tomatoes, seven point five out of ten. Uh, the consensus is anchored by a powerful powerful performance by Denzel Washington. Spike Lee's biopic of the legendary civil rights leader brings his autobiography to life with an epic sweep and a nuanced message. Um, I'll, I'll get to it when we get into the critical review, but when he has that sort of come to Allah part of his life where he go when he goes on the pilgrimage to Mecca, it's like one of my favorite parts of this movie. You know, the the real is it's kind of like prior when he talks about his revelation from what he perceived to be God about, you know, the use of racial slurs and communicating with others and feeling like Heh, maybe I've been thinking about this all wrong. It was one of those. It was one of those moments where you, where you just like you look back on your life, you know, uh, and the choices that you made, and you go, "Maybe I didn't have all the answers I thought I did. Maybe I've been doing some things wrong, and I need to make some changes." It's, it's you know, re redemption, second chances, um, epiphanies, things of that nature, really appeal to me. And you know, and Malcolm X's story, just like Richard Pryor's and many others, that's what resonates with me about this film. So let's talk about it. Uh, Malcolm Little is raised in a poor household in rural Michigan by his Caribbean mother and African-American father. When Malcolm is a young boy, their house is burnt down and his father, an activist for black rights, is killed by a chapter of the Black Legion. His death is registered as a suicide and the family receives no compensation. Malcolm's mother's mental state deteriorates and she's admitted to a mental institution. Malcolm and his siblings are put into protective care. Malcolm performs well in school and dreams of being a lawyer, but his teacher discourages it due to his skin color. In 1944, Malcolm, now a teenager, lives in Boston. One night, he catches the attention of white Sophia, and the two begin dating. Malcolm travels to Harlem with Sophia, where he meets West Indian Archie, a gangster who runs a local numbers gang at a bar. The two become friends and start cooperating in an illegal numbers racket. One night at a club, Malcolm claims to have bet on a winning number. Archie disputes this, denying him large sums of money. A conflict ensues between the two, and Malcolm returns to Boston after an attempt on his life. Malcolm, Sophia, Malcolm's friend Shorty, and a woman named Peg decide to perform robberies to earn money. All right, we're going to rob this town blind, you hear? Uh, by 1946, the group has accrued a large amount of money from thievery. However, they are later arrested. The two girls are sentenced to two years as first offenders in connection 
at the robberies while Malcolm and Shorty are sentenced to eight to 10 years in jail. While incarcerated, Malcolm meets Baines, a member of the Nation of Islam, who directs him to the teachings of the group's leaders, Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm grows interested in the Muslim religion and lifestyle promoted by the group and begins to resent white people for, for mistreating his race like you would. Malcolm is paroled from prison in 1952 after serving six years and travels to the Nation of Islam's headquarters in Chicago. There he meets Muhammad, who instructs Malcolm to replace his surname with uh, Little with X, which symbolizes his lost African surname that was taken from him by white people. He is rechristened as Malcolm X. Malcolm returns to Harlem and begins to preach the nation's message. Over time, his speeches gather large crowds of onlookers. Malcolm proposes ideas such as African-American separation from white Americans. In 1958, Malcolm meets nurse Betty Sanders. The two begin dating, quickly marry, quickly marry and become parents of four daughters. Several years later, Malcolm is now in a high position as the spokesperson of the Nation of Islam. During this time, Malcolm learns that Muhammad had fathered numerous children out of wedlock, contradicting his teachings and Islam. After President John F. Kennedy is assassinated in November of 1963, Malcolm comments that the assassination was a product of the white violence that has been prevalent in America since its founding, comparing the killing to the chickens coming home to roost. This statement does not go well, damages Malcolm's reputation, and Muhammad suspends him from speaking to the press or, or at temples for 90 days. In early 1964, Malcolm goes on a pilgrimage to Mecca where he meets Muslims from all races, including white. Malcolm, having lost his faith in the nation, publicly announces that his founding of the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which teaches tolerance instead of racial separation, he is exiled from the nation and his house is firebombed in 1965. On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm prepares to speak before a crowd at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, but tragically, disciples of the Nation of Islam shoot him several times. One of Malcolm's bodyguards shoots one of the shooters, Thomas Hagen, in the leg before a furious crowd attacks uh, beats Hagen. Malcolm is transported to a hospital that is pronounced dead on arrival. The film concludes with several clips showing the aftermath of Malcolm's death. Martin Luther King delivers a eulogy to Malcolm, and Ozzie Davis recites a speech at Malcolm's funeral. Nelson Mandela delivers a speech to his school, quoting an excerpt from one of Malcolm's speeches. And everyone says, I'm Spartacus. All right. So I love this movie. Um, it is about <laughs> it is 201 minutes yeah this is over this is three hours and 20 minutes long um i'm gonna go ahead and make a bold statement this probably didn't need to be three hours there is i no. think more than half of the movie that just deals with his coming up through crime and whatnot which you can touch on you did not need to go as in-depth as they did you would be convinced that this was like Gang, uh, what is what is it? Harlem Nights with Eddie Murphy? By the That's time a, they actually a good get, movie, it is a good movie. But you would, but it's a whole shut other my, movie. It's a shut my pinky toe off. My 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 point is, and I'll let you get in with this. My my only big criticism of this movie, while I understand the nature to create a sweeping epic, you don't need it. You don't need that much level of detail to get the to get an idea that Malcolm X had it rough. And that he might harbor some resentments of you know white people and the institutions in America that are inherently biased. I didn't need the inner workings of the numbers game. Like Spike Lee gets a little too in his direction at times, gets a little too lost in the minutia, and sometimes loses focus of what the story is he's trying to tell. This is about Malcolm X, the leader of the nation of Islam. We don't need that much backstory. Okay, so 
touching on do the right thing do the right thing did not give it lacked in a lot of points of exposition mm -hmm. malcolm x did not <laughs> Malcolm X went overboard yeah. uh over the minute details uh and i'm i'm fully on board about 45 minutes of this movie could have been cut out yeah um you know uh it, it really did feel like two separate movies mm -hmm. um and and it really takes you out of it uh, so i watched this in sections i watched this you know because it is such a hard movie to get through in one sitting mm -hmm. unless you've got like an entire afternoon clear um so yeah i watched this in sections and each time i came back to it it felt like i was watching another movie yeah uh so it wasn't like really disjointed it was just a lot of filler and a lot of minute details that could have been glossed over and that's why i i was i was really surprised you know in the comparison of do the right thing do the right thing had a a lot of details that were omitted malcolm x like i said not so much i mean i think it was it was it was a statement film i guess you could say sure to and I, I not so much statement of Malcolm X. I think it was a statement for Spike Lee to show, mm -hmm. look, I can do this. I want the respect. I want the respect of the black community to show a predominant black figure. Well, I think it's I, I can make high uh, art that should win an Oscar. Um, and I do think that there was an inherent bias against someone like Spike Lee. Spike Lee brings up icky subjects for people who think they're better than all of this. And there and there's Spike Lee going, nope. I mean, there's a great line in this where there's a white woman who says, is there anything I can do to help? And he says, basically, and he goes, no. But the subtext of that is, no, you, there's nothing you can do because you're white, which is a, which is a line I've heard in my own personal life. There's nothing any white, any white person can do to help black people. The only thing that would help is to stay out of the way. And, you know, and th there is a deep seated sense of there can be no harmony between the races. There can only be separation, you know. I, I have said this before. This is not a black thing. There are plenty of white people who feel this way too. There is very much a desire to go back to separate but equal. And if we can make separate but equal work, that would be a lot of people's that would be a lot of people's preferred uh, way of, of um, cohabitation. Way of, <laughs> yeah, of constructing the culture here in America. At least, at the very least, in America. I can't speak for anywhere else. There are definitely a lot of people across the United States that are like, yeah, yeah, separate people is the way I want to go. Um, the problem is, even when we tried that, when white people got jealous of what was going on with black people, they firebombed their neighborhoods. But hey, we'll talk about the Tulsa the Tulsa uh, race riots on another race riots. I got to go to bed. I'm starting West to... West Wabbit? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to slur and whatnot. Um, yeah. So, I'm, 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 fight, I'm fighting the Sandman over here. So we'll wrap up um, because we've been at this for almost an hour and a half, and this is supposed to be a, nine, a, a 60 minute podcast. Um, just to sum up, uh, I think <clears throat> I think you get a good sense, and I think you get a fair sense of who Malcolm X <clears throat> was by the end of his life. I think Spike Lee does a really good job of explaining to people that Malcolm X was not all bad, and that Malcolm X was a useful person in the civil rights movement, and that he, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, should be regarded as a hero at the very least to the black community <clears throat> and not a scary boogeyman to the white community. I think right. that's all, I think that's all effective. I do think that that's Spike Lee. 
got I, I think in his head his he thought the mission statement was that if I can produce something in, in over three hour epic scale of this man's life that I will be seen for a wonderful director and be rewarded accordingly and I don't know how much he looked at the film and said how how much of this film do I really need to put out there in the world? How much of this really needs to be filmed? Right. Um, you know, I think if you can get him to prison in the first 30 minutes of that movie, the rest of it you can leave largely intact and it'd be fine. That I think it's a, but it's like a whole hour of him, you know, the stuff that happens as him as a child and then him as a young adult before he goes to prison. It's like, as I said at the beginning, it's utterly unnecessary. It doesn't, the stuff that happens to his family informs his feelings about white people. The stuff happening to him as a criminal is the result of that. It doesn't really inform his beliefs later on as he's a member of the Nation of Islam that I could see. So I don't know why it's in the movie. I think it's distracting at the very least. I'll give you the last word here, but before I do, I looking back over Spike Lee's um, filmography, there's so many more of these. That I, could, I could do another set of three of these. I would love to talk about Bamboozled. I could spend an hour on Bamboozled. I have not yet seen The Five Bloods. Uh, it's something I want to see. There's a whole bunch of Spike Lee movies out there that I would love to sit and talk about and I could spend hours doing so. I genuinely enjoy him as a director. Nobody is perfect. Kenneth Branagh, who, who's directing the, you know, the leader for Best Picture this year, Belfast. Belfast, A, not a perfect movie. Kenneth Branagh, not a perfect director. You know, and he and he's also critically acclaimed. So it's not like, you know, these these people are 100 percent good, but they're more good than bad. And I could spend hours and hours and hours on his filmography. I genuinely you know, I know I, I, I in devising this list of Black History Month podcasts, I was being a little cheeky, but I but I genuinely think this this deserved a lengthy discussion of what informs Spike Lee, what kind of Spike director is Spike Lee and you know, what is his value in the culture? So uh, I will I will be revisiting Spike Lee's filmography again in the future at some point. And I'll give you the final word here. Yeah, I mean, Malcolm X is is the pinnacle of Spike Lee's career, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, Do the Right Thing was the launching pad. <clears throat> Spike Lee is the pinnacle. Old Boy is one of the swing and misses due to not understanding the source material and what was meant to be said. Uh, and that's why I like the 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 variety we took with these three movies. Now, like I said, I mean, there's nothing really bad to say about this except the runtime and the pandering and the the filler. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only downside of this. If you really want to understand um, a lot of the civil rights movement and a lot of stuff that happened in the civil rights movement that is not in your history books because uh history is written by those who won um this is a good movie to educate yourself with uh and get just not take it as a hundred percent truth but a, a good glimpse behind the curtain of the civil rights movement all right well speaking of black history month podcast jason and i reviewed some black exploitation from the early 70s with uh, pam Grizz coffee superfly and blackula we reviewed the um, the modern Shaft movies with Samuel L. Jackson, Shaft and Shaft uh, 2000. Um, there's also a re-airing of the Shaft 
movies with Richard Roundtree, the three shaft movies from the seventies that I did years ago with Sean Comer and Pat Mullen, which I forgot he was on that podcast and did not credit him appropriately. But yes, Pat Mullen was on that podcast too. He's got a re-airing of the wire as part of our black history celebration. And then whether Jason would like to admit it or not, he chose the next two out of three movies. I chose four. You chose three. You chose two. You chose two. Um, and that is our finale for Black History Month. And that is going to be Pootie Tang, uh, The Ladies' Man, starring SNL alumnus, uh, who's he, what's he? Um, yes, we two fans. <laughs> the fuck uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, that guy. Ah, shit. <laughs> I, I know. Um, I want to say Leon Little. I don't know where I'm pulling that name from. We're both so tired. Um, um, yeah. Uh, hold on. Let me get the Cavassier uh, <laughs> and a fish sandwich. Um, Do I have to look this up? I, I'm looking it up now. Um, Tim Meadows. Damn. Wow. God damn. Yeah. Tim Meadows. Yeah. Yes. We, we so, got there eventually. Hootie Tang with Chris Rock. The ladies' man with Tim Meadows. And because and because Jason's putting me through this, I had to get back at him. So we're going to do Soul Plane, starring Snoop Dogg and Kevin Hart, I believe. And Monique. Monique. It's going to be fantastic. And Tim and Tom Arnold. Uh, Soul Plane is truly token, atrocious. It's, it's, token white guy. Yeah. Dig it. it Soul Plane is truly a, a train wreck. It is amazing. It's just, I went out of my way to go see this movie. So I'm looking forward to laughing at it with you. Good, good. I'm looking forward to watching it too. Um, maybe. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, we reviewed Uncharted, The Book of Boba Fett. Um, we just reviewed Amorphous, uh, Halo, the new album by Finnish heavy metal band Amorphous. Tomorrow, Alexis Hanna will be providing a lecture that I'll be attending on the history of animation and something about the first season of Cuphead. And then Jason... And I and Alexis will all be back uh, tomorrow evening to review the best TV show I've seen in quite some time. The best written TV show I have seen in quite some time that isn't tremendously political uh, or having to do with drugs directly. And that is John Cena and uh, James Gunn's Peacemaker on HBO Max. So uh, that's what's going on tomorrow. Saturday, we've got two. We've got two. Um, Everyone loves a bad guy airings coming up. I told you about the wire. The other one is Batman Rogues Gallery, and then we kick off Batman Week in earnest. Um, Sunday the twenty seventh, we will have a re airing of Batman Hush. Uh, we will. I was be, on that show. I think. I believe you were. We will have a new source material. This time it'll be Batman White Knight with uh, Jesse Starcher and Evan Bevins. A re airing of Batman: The Burton Years with Michael Keaton. A re-airing of uh, the Dark Knight trilogy from Jane, uh, Christopher Nolan. A re-airing of the Dark Knight animated uh, movies. A re-airing of Gotham by Gaslight, the uh, this the animated movie source material. Batman Haunted Night, also the Long Road to Ruin for Batman the Animated Series Volume One. Phenomenal series. And then on Saturday, March 5th, uh, the source material we did for Gotham by Gaslight, plus trivia. Uh, we'll have a Jesse Starcher and Alexis Hanna will be hosting a trivia 
concerning the Batman through the years in comics and movies and TV shows. Um, and then just before we review the Batman, we will also be re-airing our Batman Hellboy Starman review, plus Joker 2019 and Joker by Brian Azzarello from 2008. And then finally, we will be actually reviewing the Batman starring James Pattinson on March 8th. Well, or even Robert, or Robert Pattinson. That's what I said. No, you said James. Either Go one. Go to bed, Mark. Yes, sir. All right. Um, you want to go ahead and plug your fantasy football podcast real quick? Yeah, you can catch me and Ty Louder uh, over on the Second and Short podcast. We're going through our um, division, buy, sell, keep, cut, <laughs> love, have dinner with, have a, have a hoagie down on Fifth Avenue with. Um, AFC really, East, you pray love. Yeah, uh, this time uh, our newest episode will be dropping. It dropped today on YouTube, actually. Um, was the AFC South? Uh, really interesting conversation in that one. We we it was typically not one of our episodes we agree a lot on. We did have a little debate uh, toward the end, so definitely go check that out. Uh, go check out Ty on. Uh, love war challenge podcast that he does uh so yeah and you can listen to the audio if you're part of the w2m network and has subscribed to them definitely check us out there when the audio goes up then it'll be up sometime either tomorrow or definitely by friday well right, it would folks. be today yes because it's on 1 a.m all right, folks, thank you for joining us on this triple feature, focusing on the uh, acclaimed director, Spike Lee. For Jason Teasley, I'm Mark Radledge. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>